Good morning. I'd like to welcome you to Grace Reformed Church, home of the greatest quartet of musicians. And uh, you ladies bless us with your character and your talents. So keep using it for God. And uh, I know you have some proud parents. Uh, some announcements. Um, Part of my pastoral duties is to visit people in the congregation that haven't been to church in a while. So I went out to Kalispell, Montana to see Aragorn. <laughs> um, we really care for everybody here. Just ask and we will, we will visit. So anytime you go to Hawaii or Florida, <clears throat> just ask. But Aragorn says, hi, she is doing well. She is in a beautiful part of Montana where she can look out her kitchen window and 30 feet away see turkeys, deer, elk, and maybe a mountain lion or two. So she has bear spray, and she is doing very well exploring, but she misses you guys. Some other announcements are we have... Sunday School for Adults over in the Fellowship Hall, and we are going through this lightweight book of biblical doctrine. And word has it on the street that Paul Warren is one of the most awesomest teachers we have. Where are you, Paul? There you are. Um, I'm so appreciative of the men in this church um, that when you poke the guys, Bible comes out whether they're teaching or not. And it's a blessing to be part of a biblical church that scripture is held in high regard. So the book is thick, but it's not a pedantic lecture. Um, so I would encourage you to, to come, even if you can't come every Sunday. And we have extra copies of this book. Um, they're expensive, so don't take it if you're just going to use it as a doorstop but it's fantastic. We also have, on Wednesday nights, uh, we're going to start going through you, me, and the Bible. And I have no idea if that is correct English, but you get the point. And these booklets are on the back table by the offering box. Oh, and one more book. I just got this from John MacArthur. He forgot to sign it to Andrew, my best friend. But I'll probably put that in myself just because he's, he's busy. Um, Jesus Unleashed. And it's a different view of our Lord and Savior where oftentimes Jesus is portrayed as gentle. He is the Lamb of God, but he's also the Lion of Judah. And he is God Almighty. In this book, in, I read this this morning about 2 in the morning because I, I couldn't sleep. Great review of scripture, uh, well written. The font is getting smaller and smaller each birthday, but that'll be on the back also. Did I cover everything? I get nervous. If you look um, in your worship folder, we're going to have a song. I think Julie is playing and Sharon will be singing. Grace, what? Did somebody said something? Oh, 
grace is waves of grace and it says by daryl bagley because daryl wrote the song and he didn't want me to tell you about it so don't tell him that i told you it'd be a secret just between us and i guess that video over there in any case he wrote the song and so i think it's even more meaningful to uh, daryl was impacted i think best i can recall from this passage in john where it talks about Christ, and it motivated him to, to write a, a hymn about Christ. John 1.16, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Isn't that a beautiful way to word the grace that we have in Christ Jesus? It is as a, a wave breaking the shore. And then here comes another one, and another one, and another one. You know why? Because we're going to need it. On this side of eternity, we will need a constant flow of God's grace, and I would say even in eternity, it abounds even more. So we should thank God for his goodness to us, his grace, and so let's prepare now to worship him. And I'm going to give you a moment where you are privately to pray, confess your sin, to ask for an illumination of your heart by the Holy Spirit, and for you to be able to worship Christ today in grace, in truth. And then I'll pray for us corporately. So privately first, you go to prayer, and then I'll call the church to worship. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we have gathered today here as your people to praise your holy name for who you are and for all that you have done. We thank you for the grace that has been granted to us in Christ Jesus. I pray for the many people that have not experienced this mercy, this grace, this love of God in Christ Jesus I pray that our proclamation of it through the power of the Spirit would be made even more known this day. I pray for those that are under great distress, particularly our brothers and sisters in foreign lands that are under great oppression, whether it is the oppression of the Taliban or various governments such as the communist government in China, North Korea, some of these other lands all across our, um, this, uh, this world. But you have reserved for yourself a people from every tribe, from every tongue, and from every nation. And so in solidarity, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, in whatever state they might be in. I pray that the awareness of the fullness of your grace received would be even more true this day. We're thankful for the freedom that we still have in this land. 
And I pray that we would not take it for granted, but receive it as a great gift from you, a responsibility for which we have then to use the resources and the freedom that you have given us to not only respond in great praise to your holy name, but also to support those that would proclaim Christ across the world. I pray the gospel would go forth in great power this morning in pulpits all over the world. May Christ be exalted. May the truth of who Jesus Christ is be made even more known. I pray, Father, that you will use the proclamation of your word to bring about great conviction to those that are outside of Christ. I pray that you will bring great comfort to those that are inside of Christ. I pray that you would give us great confidence in Christ and Christ alone. I pray that we would have an increased amount of joy regardless of whatever circumstances that we might find ourselves in. What a great day for us to commemorate and remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the Lord's day. And because he lives forever making intercession for us, we also can live. I pray that we would be raptured in the joy in which you have given to us in Christ Jesus. And may that blessing overflow into the lives of everyone we meet. I pray this, that Christ would be exalted in all we do. Amen. Amen. Mark 9.35 teaches, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Let's take our hymn books and stand this morning and turn to number 384. And we'll sing the servant song, 384.
morning, church. What a great couple of songs to kick it off this morning. I'd never heard that one about uh, uh, be a servant to one another. What a beautiful song. I hope we sing that again soon. The one we just finished, though, um, if you were to ask me what's my favorite hymn, I would tell you it's that one. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. First John chapter 3 tells us, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. I have an update for you this morning from our friends in Pittsburgh, uh, Josh and Becky Tancordo. I want to read that for you, and then I'd like to, uh, to pray together for those folks. Um, just a reminder to look, look in your, uh, your bulletin week to week. Uh, we kind of rotate through all those missionaries that are on the uh, the big map board downstairs in the hallway. Um, so many of these people that when we support through Anchored in Truth, we're supporting their church, their family, their ministry, um, their evangelism, all that they do uh, in the U.S. and around the world. And uh, just remember to pray for those folks, you know, week to week, month to month. Um, their Their contact information is down there as well. If you uh, have a desire to reach out to any of them personally, you can send them an email, a letter, uh, whatever way you want to reach out. They, they certainly love to, uh, to hear from us. Um, this is from, uh, from Josh in Pittsburgh. This past month, we were privileged to show the love of Christ in a very special way. We called it Love Your Neighbor Day because it was a day when our church collectively expressed love toward the homeless in our city by bringing supplies to them and talking with them. Some of the folks uh, from our church uh, got supplies ready and distributed those to the homeless. We asked our congregation to bring a list of supplies that a local homeless ministry recommended and then spent some time after the worship service stuffing drawstring book bags full of those supplies and all we prepared around 50, 50 bags. Uh, then on the subsequent Saturday, uh, 16 of us visited several homeless camps around the city in order to give them these supplies. We talked with them about the gospel. We prayed with them. We also distributed uh, uh, quality gospel literature uh, and gospel of John booklets. Uh, please pray that the seeds we planted would bear abundant fruit. In addition, we had uh, several fellowship activities, including a Women's Day Out, um, a man's rafting trip, and a youth uh, group mini-golf outing. Uh, since we've had a lot of new faces showing up, up lately, we designed these activities to help people get to know each other more and to build the relationships that are foundational to the one another ministry. Uh, things also to continue to progress with our church building. As I've mentioned uh, previously, the labor shortage has caused significant delays in the renovation process. Thankfully, things have been picking up and we're hopeful that we can move into the building in the next two months and have the major renovations completely finished in the next four months. Please continue to pray that these things would move along at a decent pace. The hotel in which we meet has been prioritizing other groups above us since the other groups typically order food and bring in more revenue. 
so things are becoming less and less stable at the hotel. This is why prayer for the building renovations is much needed. Uh, in addition, Janet's evangelistic Bible study went extremely well. As you may remember, she had four non-Christian neighbors sign up to be a part of the five-week study at her house. All four of them attended consistently, and one continues to attend our church. Please pray that God would work in all four of their hearts to draw them to himself. Their names are Gloria, Jamie, Anita, and Karen. Finally, we will be sharing some exciting news next month about events that are rapidly unfolding. We are praying, prayerfully moving forward, sending out one of our elders to plant another church in Michigan. The work would be the replant of an existing church that has come upon very difficult times and is struggling to survive. For now, we simply ask that you pray that God would bring things together and glorify himself through that endeavor. As always, thank you for your faithful prayers. Our church's greatest need isn't for better strategies or even more resources, but for God's power to be manifest. Your prayers help bring that about. Would you pray with me for these folks? Father, our prayer this morning is indeed that your power would be manifest. We pray for the different um, events and situations that are going on there with that church in Pittsburgh, for the progress on their building renovation, that that would move along um, as you intend it to, and that that, that uh, building would be available to them uh, when they need it. We also continue to pray uh, for uh, the evangelistic Bible studies. As we learn more about those, uh, those types of studies on Wednesday night, we continue to pray for those that are going on uh, with, with our brothers and sisters in Pittsburgh. We do pray for Gloria, Jamie, Anita, and Karen. We pray for the salvation of these ladies. We pray for the salvation of so many that are being witnessed to through this ministry in Pittsburgh. We, uh, we pray, Lord, that uh, some of the gospel literature and, uh, and gospel books of uh, the Gospel of John, that these people would, would open these and read these, and that uh, through the power of your Spirit that some may come to know Christ as Lord through the, the work being done there. Lord, we pray for, um, for Josh and Becky Tancordo, for their children, for the salvation of their children, as well as the salvation of so many young ones that we have here. Um, we ask your blessing over our time this morning, that um, the words that are preached and taught would be the words that you would have us to hear. And through the power of the Spirit, we may be sanctified, and that if there's any um, among us here or, or listening um, through different ways of technology, Lord, there's any who need salvation this morning that you would cause that work to be that you would grant repentance and faith in Christ's name amen please take your hymn books again and stand and turn to number 614 in my heart there rings a melody Colossians 3:16, singing psalms hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God
is so good to be back in Chattanooga, Tennessee to worship with my brothers and sisters. That song, What a Day That Will Be, uh, is, is timely for me. Uh, you know, with COVID going on, that you know, some people are getting sick and dying. And Gail and I just had uh, our church where we got married in up in Maine, way up in Maine. A good friend of ours just died, and uh, the church was real sad. And I thought, and I, I sent out an email to him saying, okay, we grieve, but we don't grieve as those without hope. Amen. And this song that you picked out, I love you guys, but I'm ready to go. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, I'm only, what, 22, I think. My body tells me differently, but think about it. To die right now is to be present with the Lord. And Gail and I talk a lot about that. And I think about it, how, how funny it is, this human life we, we walk through. And you've never heard anybody that is having a baby saying, Oh, I'm so sorry that little Andy left the womb. We rejoice. Or, Oh, I'm sorry you had to graduate high school or college or, or get married and leave the home. We look forward to those things. And I think as believers, we should be grasping this word and saying, sure, this, this life is full of love and joy and, and brotherhood, sisterhood, and church family. And even though it's cursed, there's still a lot of joy. And we have work to do. We want to be good stewards. But when our brothers and sisters die, they finished their race. All our days are written before the foundation. And we serve, hopefully, with strength and vigor and consistency. But there comes a graduation day. And I'm looking forward to that. And I, you know, Gail's a lot older than me, and I can say that because she left me this morning to go to Nashville to see our son. Um, and maybe she won't watch this, but. I'm going to grieve my best friend's going if, if she doesn't send me off first. <laughs> but you won't find me saying, oh, God, would you pre please bring my bride back to this sin-cursed world so she can struggle another 30 years? Why would we think that? What a glorious day it will be. And if I happen to die sooner, I want somebody to say that at my funeral and it's going to be like what a glorious day Alexson isn't here anymore <laughs> well with that let me let me transition <laughs> yeah I know you, you I appreciate the men who come up here and have good solid words to say and uh, I know that my speaking just highlights your appreciation of them even more but we're going to read Psalm 72 and I brought my Bible with me, just so you know, I'm reading from God's Word. But I have it in large print so I can see it. And I probably won't pray much at the end, because this is a prayer of David. And if you look at the, the last verse, verse 20, it says, The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So I'm going to read this as a prayer, and I want you to notice two things, that it starts off with requests, but then in the middle it gives the reason why 
for the request. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. One day, every knee shall bow before our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 12 is the transition. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live, may gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Father, I praise you for your love toward us. Your wisdom shines. And I thank you that you have given us an inspired Bible, that you have stooped to speak to us through your word and through your son, that we have the word incarnate and the word written. Please guide our pastor as he brings forth the word. Would your Holy Spirit strengthen us, illumine our paths, Give us hope and courage. May it work its mighty work in our souls for your glory. Use the offerings as your wisdom would guide. May your name be made glorious throughout the world through our meager offering and our worship of you today. Amen.
Someone gave me an acronym for grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. I think that's a good definition indeed of it. Grace is his unmerited gift given solely as the overflow of who God is. God incarnate is the person, Jesus Christ, who will be looking at his trial here before Caiaphas this morning. Our text is from John 18, and really verse 24, we'll jump from there to Matthew chapter 26 for further detail. We're going through the book of John, and we have now come to John 18, it's the religious trial. There are two trials. There is a religious and a civil, if you will, civil in the sense it's, a, it's by the state. It's criminal, really, before the Roman authorities. Each of these trials has three distinguishing parts. In this religious trial... Jesus is first brought to Annas, which John describes because the other gospel writers do not. Annas was the rightful high priest. He was removed by Pilate's predecessor, as we talked about last week. Annas, however, was regarded as a very important, prestigious, influential patriarch. And he was respected, highly respected, by the people. 
Annas led the people. There was no, as we might think of it in our culture, separation of church and state. The religion and the state were one and the same. So when you hear about these religious leaders, they're not religious leaders in the sense that we might have religious leaders in our country. These are also those governing authorities and probably much better to be thought of in that way as these demonstrate that indeed they are unregenerate. They lived in a theocratic type of government, but the Jewish nation at this time was, of course, under the foot of Rome. They were a vassal state, but one of the ways that Rome conquered and continued these people across the world was that they allowed them a certain degree of autonomy to govern themselves to some degree. The Jewish nation didn't have the right to carry out capital punishment. So if their courts determined that was necessary, then they would need to turn it over to the Roman government. They would first render a guilty verdict in a capital case and then in their court and then send it over to the Roman courts. Last week we looked then at the beginning of this trial of Jesus under Annas from verses 19 through 23 in chapter 18. And as I concluded and hopefully you could see some of it, we didn't get into every detail but enough that all that was transpiring here under Annas was illegal in every respect. They violated their own laws to render a verdict against Jesus Christ. With Annas, there was no formal charge made against Jesus. There was no, it was carried out by, at night, again, another violation. Annas was the single judge there. It was supposed to be a court of many, hence the Sanhedrin, 71 max. Could have been a quorum, but it was just Annas. If you remember from last week, there was no witnesses brought forward, which was required. Annas himself attempted to interrogate Jesus. All of these are violations of their own rules. The judge was to be an advocate, there would be multiple, and and they were to function more or less as fair and balanced, a word we have. But more than that, they were actually to be proactive under their governing rules to try to seek out a non-guilty verdict because it would be better in this life to allow a guilty person that you're not sure about to go free than to convict an innocent person. That would be an injustice to convict an innocent person. And so since they are not omniscient and perfect in their law, they create these law and the rule to try to help safeguard convicting somebody who was not guilty. But this is not how they practiced. And they actually carried out violent acts with Annas as the, one of the servants of the high priest struck him. As we ended last week, we, <clears throat> we really ended with Annas there 
engaged in this illegal trial, he was ultimately silenced by Jesus. Annas wanted to find Jesus guilty, but his actions demonstrated his own guilt. And he was left speechless. By the way, when the judge of all earth who does right, stand, you stand before him, you will be speechless too. And I pray that you will be protected by him and him alone. It would be your only hope. Here, this great authority standing before Jesus, standing before him, should I say, he is left without a word to utter. And so, what does he do instead? He should repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, recognize his own guilt, in fact, what he's doing. Instead, he, in his rebellious heart, verse 24 of John 18, he, Annas, then sends him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Jesus should have been freed, declared not guilty. But he bounds him and sends him to another kangaroo court. Caiaphas is considered the authority from Rome's perspective. Remember, the Rome allowed these vassal states to govern themselves, but they always kept their finger in the pie, if you will. They always stirred things up a bit. They needed to go to Caiaphas to get the official ruling so that they could then turn Jesus over to Rome for execution. But he first had to be found guilty. He would need a trial that resulted in a guilty verdict. And that's what these leaders were about in doing. They, this was not a real trial. It was a sham trial. If you remember... <clears throat> From last week, verse 14, John notes that it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. That comes from John chapter 11, where he announces to the rest of the Sanhedrin, hey, this is a troublemaker. You know what? It's going to be best for us to do what? To collude together to kill him. And that's what John, you can find that in John 11.53. From that day, they made plans to put him to death. That's what they were about to do. The verdict was already in. They were just trying to find a way to achieve their intended results, even if it violated every rule of law that they had established. As I mentioned, John doesn't give us then the further details. He just says in, that Jesus is bound and sent to Caiaphas. He doesn't tell us anything about the trial before Caiaphas because it was well known. The other three gospel writers included those details. But since we may not be as familiar, I think it would be good for this morning, for us to be reminded of this second aspect of this religious trial. And then I'll go ahead and weave in, since we'll, we should be able to get all this done today, the third aspect, which is the rest of the Sanhedrin, that is, the, the other rulers of the Jews. 
We can find this from Matthew chapter 26. And so I invite you to turn there. Matthew chapter 26. And, and we, we may reference, for, for sake of filling in, I, Mark 14 and Luke 22. These are the other gospel sections that include this particular trial. But we'll just follow along from Matthew's text and highlight at what's going on. Matthew chapter 26. This show trial begins in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. The scribes and the elders would have been part of this Sanhedrin group. They had gathered in Caiaphas' assembly. Remember Jesus over here at, at, with Annas. This probably buys some time, if you will, for them to gather the people together for Caiaphas to lead a show trial. Verse 58, it does mention Peter who observes it as well. Peter was following him at a distance. As far as the courtyard of the high priest and going inside, sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on clouds of heaven. Then the priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. And then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? That's the evening. They're supposed to make this verdict, which they do here. He deserves death is the verdict. <laughs> but the fix was in, I hope you know, right? They already knew what the verdict was. They were just finding out a way that they could declare it. They're supposed to not have this at night. They're supposed to have it in the day. But it's night. And they make this vote. Supposed to have it the day, then they sleep on it overnight and reassemble the next day and try to undo their verdict if they could and go several days until they're very sure because you don't want to condemn an innocent man, right? No one wants to do that. 
No one that is just and good and holy wants to do that. But no, they had a deadline to meet, and that is they must turn this over to the Roman authorities in the morning. They must turn it over because how hypocritical it is. Because Passover is Saturday. This must be done Friday morning. So rather than sleep on it, they regather the Sanhedrin, and you'll find that in chapter 27. And I'll continue reading. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him, led him away, and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you will grant us wisdom from your holy word. I pray that we will hear what Christ would need to tell the church today. By way of application, Father, which are many and multitude, I do pray that you will take your word, apply it to people's hearts in the way they need to hear. I pray that you grant us understanding of this great truth. And may Christ shine forth even brighter this day, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I'm going to follow this Matthew text, jumping off from this John 18, because, again, John assumes we know what went on with Caiaphas, so he just says, Annas binds him and sends him to Caiaphas. This was well known. Not as much to us, and I think it would take, be worthy to take a second glance, if you will, in this text, and we'll just follow along primarily from Matthew. This is the formal trial. That informal trial before Annas has already occurred, and Annas has failed. Christ has passed with flying colors. But here, in Matthew's account, as the other Gospels do as well, They point out illegal activities, the guilty verdict against these very people who would declare Jesus guilty. They are guilty. They are the transgressors here. And Matthew indicates that as well. And as I've already alluded to, there is no advocate, number one. There's no advocate for Jesus. Instead, there is a plot to kill him. Jewish law required the judges to gather together to seek truth, to err on the side of the defendant, recognizing that ultimately vengeance is the Lord's. No one will get away with murder. You might in this life, and we understand that. But (laughs) the judge of all earth will do right. I can assure you. And if injustice has been done to you and to other of your loved ones that you know, it's okay. God will take care of it in the end. All sin will be atoned for. It will either be paid for by Christ who gave his life to ransom or it will be paid by you in your continued judgment of the wrath of God. 
This judge system that is set up, however, is set up for good, as the courts are. Never perfect in under human rule, if you will. We're fallen. We make mistakes. But nevertheless, the judges were initially set up and are, even in our day, to good, to suppress evil, to suppress evil by punishing evildoers so that people would be less likely to commit further crimes. It is a suppression of evil. And this system that we have here before us, this Jewish system, as complicated as it might be, it really, as I looked into it further, it is really a good system of judgment if they will follow the rules. (laughs) If they attempt to actually seek the truth. But politicians don't often seek the truth. They just say they do. They really, if you, and I don't mean to be cynical, and I'm sure there are many, many exceptions to the rule. I just haven't found many, but perhaps you, you have. They have a tendency to extend their own power, their own privilege, and their own prestige. As we noted last time from John chapter 11, that's what these governmental leaders, if you will, were doing. They were afraid Rome was going to take away their seat of power, so they needed to do something about it, and they needed to kill this man. They were seeking false testimony. This is a clear violation. Notice verse 59 in chapter 26. It says, the chief priests and the whole council, that is the whole lot of them, all of them, every one of them, were seeking false testimony against Jesus so that they could put him to death. They violated their own rules. They were not looking for ways to exonerate him as their oaths had charged them to do. Instead, they were driven to execute him. Look back in verse 3 of the same chapter in Matthew. Matthew 26, 3. Matthew clues us into this. Again, the chief priests and the elders of the people, that is the Sanhedrin, gathered together, all of them. They're gathered together in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. You've heard of him before, right? And here's what they were doing. They plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. That's what they were about. So here you have the governing body plotting together to bring up false charges to accomplish their goal. Matthew tells us here from the beginning of this account that like Annas, these men also under Caiaphas, are guilty of violating the same standards by which they had established, that they had agreed, they had come together, written many additional laws in addition to the Mosaic Covenant under the Talmud. They have written these laws so that they would have a fair trial. But they weren't interested in a fair trial. They were faking it. 
They were just gathering together and filling some of the formal requirements so that they can hypocritically carry on and look to some people a certain degree of legitimacy, but they were not. They were illegitimate. From the very beginning, their objective was to kill Jesus. There were no accusers of Jesus, which was required under their law. Notice verse 60, it back to Matthew 26. They found none. Of course not. No one had ever spoken like Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, no one. You could find many faulty things in what I say. I regret many times because of various circumstances or whatever it might be, but it's really my sinful heart that I wish I could take back words that I've said, words that I've said to people that I care about, words that I've said to people I don't care about. Don't you wish you could do that? And you are thinking of those words even now. Do you understand? There is no guile in Christ's mouth. He never said a single word which needed to be taken back. No wonder they couldn't find any accusers of him, which indeed were required. The accusers are the ones that would make the accusation and bring it then to this court, these judges and declare what they heard. But they had none because the, the fix was in. The judges were out looking for some false testimony. And it says many false witnesses came forward. Many came in our text. But they couldn't find any. They couldn't find two or three that actually agreed. I don't know who told me this, but they said it works pretty good. Always tell the truth because that way you'll remember what you said. If you, if you actually hear something and you repeat exactly what that is, then you can be consistent in your testimony, and that's what they were looking for. They required an exact testimony by two or three that was consistent with each other. If you remember back in uh, the trial before Annas, that first part, Jesus reminds Annas of that very thing when Annas asks him to give a testimony in, in their court of law. The defendant wasn't to give a testimony. Instead, it was these accusers. And Jesus simply tells Annas in 1821 of John, well, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Again, can you imagine his entire ministry, his entire life up to this point, and no one could say a false thing about Jesus. No one could bring an accusation. Who is this person? This is God incarnate, and it is only Christ whose word is always true. Before Caiaphas, there were witnesses. With Annas, there's none. Caiaphas then fixes that problem, and they go out and seek witnesses. They bring them in, but all of them are false. Now, 
We've heard about liars, cheats, and thieves. I won't make the application. Deuteronomy chapter 19, if you want to, turn there. Because to lie in their court of law is a greater offense, really. It's a big offense in our court. But it's a greater offense than theirs. This is under the Mosaic law. This isn't just the tradition, which if I get time, I'll talk about that in a bit. This is actually the inspired code in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 19, that these uh, officials were governing under. This is the primary law. Remember, they wrote more law to explain it and add to it, but this is foundational and fundamental concerning witnesses is why I want you to see it from the text. When Matthew says that these are all false, and it's also demonstrated that they are false, here's what happens in court. Deuteronomy 19.15 A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three shall a charge be established. In other words, you need more than one, right? You just can't have one person say, oh, I saw so-and-so do that. You need two people and reading more is better. It makes it more established But by the way, these witnesses must agree in any case. So that's the basis. Now what happens if you bring together witnesses and you find that they're not truthful? They're false. Well, here in the code it's explained. Verse 16. If a malicious witness arises, that's the idea of a false witness. Okay? If, if somebody arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. God has appointed them as magistrates over the people to do what? To do what is right, to do what is just, to do what is good. So in that sense... If you're doing right and just and good, you're representing God, the Lord. Okay? So, a false witness comes forward. You bring them together. And the judges, this is the Sanhedrin group, shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, verse 19, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. Did I tell you the harsher charge? Yeah, they wanted to kill Jesus. So what should have happened to these false witnesses? All of them dead right there. Verdict, guilty, guilty, guilty. Condemned to death, death, death. What do they do to these false witnesses? They just brush them aside. That makes the judges guilty, right? Do this, and the reason this law is in there, as I alluded to before, so that you'll purge evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any evil among you. Boy, I'll tell you what, that, if that was in our courts today, lying would, is a big penalty. It would be, in this case, the death penalty. 
Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You've heard the phraseology, life for life. Nothing was done to these false witnesses because the very judges solicited their testimony. And the problem is these that they solicited couldn't keep their story straight. They gave false testimony. These men are so deep in their hypocrisy, though, they won't quit. They can't string a couple guys together. And those that they do string together, they really expose them to guilt. They're bogged down in the mud, if you will. And they're flooring it. And all that's happening is the wheels are spinning. Verse 60 of Matthew 26, back to there. At last! (laughs) At last! Two came forward. I can imagine Matthew sitting here penning this. I imagine a whole menagerie of false witnesses come forward and, and, you know, it's quite the circus here. But finally, a couple come forward and say this, Matthew 26, 61. Well, they hear Jesus say this, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Well, at least you have a couple that agree, but not really. First, their testimony is really a distortion of the truth. When they said that, that's part of the problem. Jesus did teach in his teaching. You can find it in John chapter 2, 19, where he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And, of course, the Jews that heard him there, the witnesses, John 2, 20, I'm reading, well, they, they did publicly say, well, when he said that, they said, well, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. He used that by way of analogy. They knew what he was talking about. But again, they were just looking for a phrase to hang him on. It could be treason to speak against the temple in the sense that I'm going to go destroy the temple, right? I'm going to go bring this edifice down. But Jesus said, I will raise it up in three days. He's speaking of the temple of his body. He did, however, also teach about the destruction of the temple. Not that he would destroy it, but that it would be destroyed. Mark 13 I'll read it for you. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. (laughs) And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He predicted the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. He wasn't going to destroy it, but that it would be destroyed His message is true. These two false witnesses come forward and perhaps they conflate all these ideas. His prophecy as well as his resurrection. 
But by the way, when I said they agreed, well, they didn't really. They still disagreed in how they presented the material. And for that, you can find it in Mark chapter 14. You may want to note it or even go there. Mark chapter 14. Because Mark drills down on that specific issue about those witnesses to make sure we know. Those witnesses who come up with this convoluted thing, pretending like, oh, Jesus was talking about he's going to go out there with a sledgehammer and destroy the temple. Good luck, you know, in that and, and so forth. Mark tells us in Mark 14, 55, as the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. He repeats that same idea, right? For many bore false witnesses against him, but notice this, but their testimony did not agree. That's the problem. And then some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, verse 58, here's the same story, same group. We heard him say, I'll destroy the temple that's made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. And note what Mark makes clear to us, verse 59, yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So all the plotting has come to no end. The best laid plan here has failed. They bring in these witnesses. These witnesses don't agree. Their testimony really needs to be thrown out. They need to be judged because they are indeed false witnesses, but it is the ruling class who brings them in, so they're guilty. So everything is falling apart right before them. And again, what should happen under Caiaphas's domain here is the same thing that should have happened with Annas, and that is to recognize this is a holy man of God whose word is true. Perhaps I should listen to him. But then you see the rebellion in their heart as this high priest here back in Matthew 26 and verse 62, he turns and tries to question Jesus himself, which again, Jesus could say, where's the witnesses? They don't have the witnesses because they don't agree, even with this convoluted story that's kind of sounds something against him. He asks him that question in verse 62 of Matthew 26, have you no answer to make, he says? What these men testify against you? What answers did Jesus make? Well, he probably should say, well, you ought to condemn them for false testimony to death. But this is an improper question. He's not to answer that type of question, and he doesn't. Verse 63, he remains silent. And the silent is deafening. The witnesses can't get their story straight, and Jesus is under no obligation to kind of help them out. There is nothing actually to explain. There is no accusation. He doesn't need to answer, in this case, a fool according to his folly. Once again, you have silence. 
silence similar to that which rung out in the courts of Annas. And the imagery is clear, as I've alluded to before. Isaiah, the prophet, described this Jesus as being oppressed, afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and the sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. It's Passover time. There's a lot of sheep around. And here is the very Lamb of God intentionally submitting himself to these evil men to accomplish the greatest good that ever could be done. The greatest injustice is going to result in the greatest gift of God to men. But Caiaphas can't stand being beat. He has a rebellious heart. And so back to our text in 26 of Matthew and verse 63. Here do you sense this great desperation of this man who has put everything together, who knows he's going to lose his position and his power and his prestige if Jesus somehow becomes exalted. He will no longer be in rule and reign. And so in desperation, he then demands an oath of Jesus, if you will. He says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. This phraseology, I adjure you, is, is he's saying, doing something different. No longer commenting on what these witnesses didn't say. Instead, simply this, square to me an oath. Tell me who you are. Declare to me who you are. Are you indeed the Christ? Are you indeed the Son of God? Notice Jesus' response. You have said so. Interesting enough, remember Caiaphas, who's in that position, declares an absolute truth. God can use evil men for his good. Those are the first two words of truth given in that trial. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. It wouldn't be offense to say that you are the Christ, that means Messiah, if you're a Jewish person because they had talked about a Messiah coming and that wouldn't be a capital offense to say that you're the Messiah. Time would prove whether you were or not. It was going to be a man from their own countrymen. They, they recognized that. They were looking for someone, and many claimed to be the deliverer of Israel. None proved to do it. So that wouldn't be a problem. It also wouldn't be an offense, really, for Jesus to respond about being a son of God because you could be a son of God in the sense that you were covenantally related to God and therefore a child of God. 
and to be a son of God in that sense. All Israelites were children of God in that sense. But the way it's phrased here by Caiaphas, putting these two together, he's indicating something different. That you're not just any man, you are the God-man. That's what he's saying. You are God incarnate. You are the Messiah who is also God. And Christ simply responds, yes, you have said so. By the way, the cult groups who deny the deity of Christ, this pagan (laughs) religious governmental leader recognized precisely what Jesus had said. He knew what he said. But Jesus takes one step further to make sure that everyone knows precisely what he says and that he doesn't get it wrong to the whole group. He tells, yes, I am God incarnate. I am the Messiah. I am God. And in the phraseology, he says, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The Son of Man alludes to the Son of Man in Daniel 7.13 when the Ancient of Days was presented before him. One like a Son of Man, this is God incarnate. To say that you're going to see him in the clouds of power, again, it alludes one example from Psalm 110, where the Lord God says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. He is clarifying to them that he is God in human flesh, that he is sovereign Yahweh. He is unique. He is the God-man. And back to our text in verse 65, Caiaphas knows exactly what Jesus is saying. At that point, he tears his clothes. We're not used to that. That would be kind of weird in our culture, I guess, but in their culture, not so much. This clothes were very expensive and very important. And as you can imagine, the high priest's clothes were a little bit more formal or ornate and important. To tear clothes was a big gesture of disgust. I'll read this for you and you can look it up later. Tearing the clothes is a violation of the of the law for the high priest. He couldn't tear his robes. That was an illegal violation again. Leviticus 10.6. To the high priest, he says, Do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. In their tradition... In the Talmud, I, they made an exception for certain high blasphemy. 
The Mosaic law does not. I, I conclude that he is in great violation in doing that. And guess what? He deserves death. That's what all of this is showing. All of these men deserve death, even the high priest. And he demonstrates his own guilt by ripping his clothes off when Jesus says that I am the Messiah. I am sovereign God. Caiaphas says he's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? They didn't have any witnesses. They just heard the testimony of Jesus and declared it to be blasphemy. Verse 66 of chapter 26, what's your judgment? And here the Sanhedrin says he deserves death. This is, as I mentioned, the first vote in this capital case. It's the dark of night. It's illegal. Their guilt is magnified by their actions. And they even demonstrate it further by mocking Christ, verse 67. The other gospel writers tell us that they blindfolded Christ at this point. They struck him. They spit in his face, which would be a high violation in that culture. They slapped him around and then mocked him by saying, hey, tell us who slapped you. The mockery, beatings, insults, injustice, and disgrace received by Christ was undeserved by him. But it was deserved by those who delivered those very acts and actions. Can I stop and tell you that it is easy, as I pointed out, hopefully you've seen, and we haven't even touched the half of it. It's easy to see the guilt in these men, isn't it? But all of the unjust treatment received by Christ, can I postulate this? That's exactly what I deserve. I should have been crucified. I should have suffered and died. I should have hung on the cross in disgrace. But Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, took my place. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for Jesus Christ submitting himself to all this injustice and more. And yes, I pray that we would recognize that certainly in the lives of others, but also recognize our own hearts, which are in constant rebellion. I pray that you would cause us to be conformed more and more to the image of your Son. We're thankful that you bore the sin of many and that you continue to make intercession for the transgressors such as I. We're thankful for the grace of God in Christ Jesus who would take the guilt 
of not just these men, but all in rebellion against you and pay the penalty that is due. I pray, Father, for everyone would truly repent and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory and receive refuge in Christ and Christ alone, recognizing his intercession. May we not respond like guilty men and reject him, but as guilty men who receive Christ's atonement for our guilt and forevermore worship and praise your holy name. We look forward to a day, oh, what a day that will be, when we will see Christ face to face and we will be speechless for your grace. In Christ's name, amen. Beloved, take just a moment now to think on these things and respond to Christ in the way he has spoken to you today. Take a moment privately right where you're at. Respond to him. stand and sing 603 when we all get to heaven number 603 in my father's house are many mansions i am going away to prepare a place for you john 14 2 
Gracious Father, we pray that all these this morning here would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him in all respects. May he bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You're dismissed.